Today we're starting a new sermon series, and it's one we're going to be in for most of the summer. It's a sermon series where we're going to be uh, lifting up some of our centering stories as a congregation in this 73 years of our existence. Now, some of these stories you will have heard before, uh, but in case you haven't, we want everybody to know them, and we want you to hear them again. Because this is not just a time of us looking back and celebrating our history, but it's a time of knowing where our past has led us to this day and the exciting future that this church has before us. We're going to talk about who we are as a diverse community, as we say in our vision statement, passionately engaging the Bible, uplifting Jesus in worship and loving service. And what we do here is that we love all people into relationship with Jesus Christ. That's our mission. And how we do that is through our values of worship. We have nine different worship services, and that explains why we don't have nine uh, more Wesley uh, Wonder Singers up here. They're in the different worship services. But worship is essential for our spiritual growth. It's important for us in centering our lives. And we also uplift learning that we do in our classes and groups, and we encourage all members to be involved in learning, especially um, the value of the Bible, God's Word, in classes and groups, and engage. We want our members here to engage, and that is to share your gifts and your skills and your money and everything we engage to make this church and its ministry and outreach all that it can possibly be. And we hope this series will be inspiring and informative to the members of this church. We hope that you will understand some of our history that brings us to this place. And we hope to those of you who are our guests, who are visiting, that you will hear loudly and clearly an invitation to you to be part of this congregation and our outreach to the world. But the most important question this sermon series uplifts is why? Why become part of this community of faith? Or for those of you who are members, why do you continue to be part of this community of faith? And I believe it's because we need people who are not content to just stand on the sidelines but are committed to this radical acceptance that this church has been about all of this church's existence. And that we will have people who will say, it's important for me to love all people into relationship with Jesus Christ just like Lover's Lane uplifts. So you can count me in. We need people here who wholeheartedly believe that those who come in count. And we need more and more people who are passionate about what we say at every entrance of this church. You are welcome. All are welcome. And you'll be hearing more a slogan that we're going to be uplifting in many different ways that we're about loving you and you is not qualified. You means you. And we need people who know that they're not perfect and they need help. And I'm looking at a whole lot of imperfect people out there right now. We need help, don't we? And especially uh, their families who know that they need help uh, rearing their children. Dean, how much fun we're going to have rearing this child 
in the faith. And the values of this church and what this church is about reinforce what I hope you, and I know Tammy and I, are committed to instill within our children a radical acceptance. So why? Who does not need to be part of a fellowship that is committed to loving you and equipping you to be about our main cause, and that is to challenge in love that which divides. We need more members off the sidelines and in the game of this kind of love. This morning our centering passage is going to come from the Gospel of Mark, the second chapter, the beginning of Jesus' ministry as uh, shared with us by Mark in his Gospel. This is a ministry of the calling of Levi, otherwise known as Matthew. And the calling of Matthew, Levi, Matthew, as a, a disciple is an important calling because it centers the mission of Jesus. It allows Jesus to say what his call is all about. So let's turn to Mark, the second chapter, beginning with the 13th verse. Let's all stand for the reading of God's Word. Jesus went out again beside the sea, and the whole crowd gathered around him, and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And Levi got up and he followed him. And as Jesus sat at dinner in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I have come to call not the righteous, but the sinners. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Now, several years ago, there was a book that came out written by a fellow pastor, a pastor in Austin, pastor of the Gateway Community Church there. He wrote a book with a captivating title, and I had to read it. The title was No Perfect People Allowed. And John Burke said in his book, in the very beginning, he set the tone and he said this. It's a question. You may know the answer. I don't know. But what do a Buddhist, a biker couple, a gay rights activist, a transient, a high-tech engineer, a Muslim, a 20-something single mom, a Jew, a couple living together, and an atheist have in common? They are the future church in America. And Burke continues. I hope painting a picture of what God is doing through the church will help you see how you can experience the invisible Jesus made visible through the body, his body, your local church. 
But I must warn you up front. Doing church like this is a mess. But it's a beautiful mess. You know, when I read that and continued to read that book, it was so refreshing to me to know that there was another pastor somewhere that really did get it. It is a mess to love as Jesus has called us to love. It was a mess for him. It's a mess today. It never was meant to be anything but a mess. It certainly wasn't meant to be neat because Jesus was the one who not only welcomed a tax collector like Levi, but he welcomed Samaritans who were also despised and hated racially. He welcomed women and Gentiles and slaves and others whose acceptance was questioned. So Jesus calls us to people today. This church, Lover's Lane, to those who are struggling with sin, does that hit anybody? Disbelief, addictions, differences, prejudices, sexuality, physical challenges, hang-ups, and in general, our messy lives. If our church was not like that, you know, I don't even know if I'd feel real welcome. How about you? You know, we got permission from John Burke to put a sign out here on Northwest Highway where thousands of people would pass a day, and the sign said, no perfect people allowed. Now, I don't know that we've ever had a sign before or ever had a sign since that caused more commotion. Oh, did I get the letters. I got letters that said, I love that sign. I got emails, I love that sign. I got some, take that sign down. I hate that sign. I think I shared a few weeks ago when I was talking about that sign that there was a prominent citizen of Dallas. I I won't call his name, quite a character. Billionaire. Ran for president once. Oh, anyway, but (laughs) he was a good friend of one of our associates and he, in keeping with with his character, called our associate up and said, I'm so sorry, I can't come to your church anymore. And our associate said, why not? And he said, well, you said no perfect people allowed. That counts me out. But this book has made me think that Burke really would have us change the wording of the sign. That sign that we have that says, you are welcome with the words, unless you think you're perfect. The idea is that we are all under construction. And Lover's Lane is the church of the radical acceptance. In 1998, I climbed into this pulpit on the shoulders of three pastors, only three pastors who had preceded me. Doctors Tom Shipp, who was here for 31 years. Dr. Don Benton, who was here for 18 years. My predecessor, uh, Bill Bryan, was here for just a short time, but did some very important uh, ministry here in opening our eyes to our church's history and our future. I didn't know much about Lover's Lane. When the bishop called me into his office and said, you know, do you know much about Lover's Lane? We're looking for a pastor there, and I wanted to talk to you. Do you know much about it? And this is literally what I told the bishop. The only thing I know about Lover's Lane is there's lots of singles and lots of drunks. That was an awful thing to say. But you have to remember, I didn't want to come. 
But in the 80s, this church was known for being a church where singles gathered. In that room that I was just talking about, Asbury Hall, it was full of a big single Sunday school class. We were known for a singles ministry. And we were also known as a church since the 40s who'd opened its doors to alcoholics. And that was so unusual that that story of who we are continued. And that's what I knew about this church. You know, our first full-time pastor, Tom Shipp, who was here for 31 years, Tom was messy. He had a messy upbringing. There was nothing neat about it. He was an orphan. I want to say a little bit more about that at the end of this sermon. But part of the messiness of Tom's ministry he brought here when he became the pastor in his mid-twenties. And part of what made him who he was as a pastor was an experience that he had before he became a pastor here when he was an associate pastor at Highland Park Methodist Church at that time, back in the 40s. He received a phone call one day that changed his life. And he received it by accident. A man had called, and uh, there were, were, were no other seasoned pastors around. They'd all gone to lunch. Tom had to field the call. And it was a brother who said, uh, my brother has just called me, and he is drunk in a junkyard in Dallas, and he is so inebriated he couldn't tell me where he was. Can you find him? Now, back in the 40s, Dallas was smaller, fewer junkyards, right? Tom said yes, and he found him. Now, I want to read to you Tom's own words about what he found. Tom said, I found him lying on the back seat of a battered Ford. His face showed almost green through a two-week stubble of a beard. His suit was rumpled and filthy. At his feet were a dozen empty bottles, and the stench was unbearable. I had never seen a man as sick as this man was. I'd never dealt with a drunk. I'd never been intoxicated myself. And now suddenly this alcoholic was my responsibility. He was a man who once was a respected principal in school in Texas. But when he was in his mid-30s, he'd been persuaded to take a drink at a board of education meeting, and after that it was all downhill for Bob. He drank so much that he finally deserted his family and disappeared from friends and relatives for a full year. And meanwhile, his wife had divorced him. What was I going to do to bring healing to a man like that. I really believed as I drove back to the church that someone would be able to, to cure him. After I phoned Bob's brother to tell him that I had Bob safe with me, I began making calls to other ministers. I'm sorry, I just don't know much about handling alcoholics, they told me. Just do what you can until his brother gets there. I called two doctors that I knew in the congregation. There's really very little that you can do to help someone who drinks like that. Both of them said, I wished I knew a cure, but I don't. So finally, 
I called another doctor and asked him to help Bob into the hospital. And he said, I can't do that. Hospitals don't accept people just because they're drunk. You'll have to take him to the drunk tank at the jail. Tom said, I began to realize the helplessness that alcoholics and their families then faced in the 40s. Neither ministers nor doctors had any better ideas about how to rehabilitate an alcoholic than did I, a first-year theological student. There seemed to be nothing to do but to take Bob home with me until his brother arrived. So at that tiny apartment in which my wife lived and I lived, we put Bob in the only bed we had in the house. And I told my wife, Dee, oh, it won't be long now and his brother will be here. And then Tom said, I received another call from the brother from the hospital. The brother said he just had an emergency appendectomy and he wouldn't be there for several days. Would that be okay? Tom said by the second night, Bob had begun to see little men crawling all around the room. I had to sit and hold his hand through the night. Turn on more lights, more lights, he kept screaming. He managed to struggle through, we managed to struggle through three hectic days and finally Bob was sober. In those days I was naive enough to believe that to cure alcoholism, all you had to do was to dry out a drunk just once and for all. It was that experience that marked this pastor. It was messy. And a year later, that young 20-something pastor was the pastor of this church that was meeting in a house And Tom brought his passion for alcoholics with him. But not only that, he brought alcoholics with him. And that called all of this radical acceptance into question. See, Tom was instrumental in bringing AA to Dallas because of that experience. He had met some, uh, a woman who had come to the church to pick up some upper rooms, and he inquired, what are you using the upper rooms for? She said, we have a group called AA, Alcoholics Anonymous, and we use this, this upper room in our group. So Tom helped bring out AA to Dallas, and guess what? Bob was in the first group. In the 1940s, Lover's Lane had a vision that caused it to open its doors to those struggling with alcohol addiction. For you see, what what was so strange about that at the time was alcoholism was just seen as a sin and alcoholics were just seen as sinners and the church surely wasn't a place for sinners to be found, right? It was only for us good people, right? Us perfect people, right? Right? Some question whether alcoholics should be welcome at this young new church called Lover's Lane. I mean, reputation's important. 
There was one family that wrote a letter that said, you know, we're going to leave the church because we don't, we don't want to be part of the first alcoholic church of Dallas. Wow, wouldn't that have been a great name? First alcoholic church. That'd be better than Lover's Lane. It's not on Lover's Lane. First alcoholic church of Dallas. And Tom, he made a speech like drawing a line in the sand. The, 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 the head of the council said it made all the difference in the world in his ministry and his connection to the church. Tom said, hey, look, these people need us. And if we're not here for people who need us, why are we here? And you don't need me to be your pastor if we're not going to be for people who need us. One family left. And the church outgrew the house. Then it outgrew the school. Then it built its first chapel. It outgrew the chapel. And then into the buildings. It had this growing and going dynamic because this church was doing things, things that were different. Things in keeping with the call of Jesus. Now the vision was that God was creating a place where people who were deemed sinners could find a safe, caring, loving place here. And, And today... You can read it in the bulletin on the back page of your bulletin. It's there in the fine print there at the bottom. Dr. Shipp in 1945 started this openness to alcoholics. Dr. Don Benton and his son Dink started 12-step ministry in 1991. And today 3,700 people a week go to the Center for Spiritual Development across the street dealing with their addictions. And praying for recovery. People were welcomed here at Lover's Lane from the very beginning, whether their behavior was questionable or not. And we've also welcomed people whose orientation, which means how God created them, their being, was questioned whether it was acceptable as member here or not. Next week, you'll hear about Mrs. Bernice Jones, one of God's children who was created African-American, who was welcomed into this church in 1961. And when she came in, 20 families left. But by the end of the year, 587 members had joined. And the church was the fourth largest church in Methodism. And Tom made another speech. He said, we're not going to start voting on who becomes a member. He said, how do I turn someone away from Christ? All are welcome here. We've been living with that pronouncement for a long time. It makes for messy church, believe me, at times. Bishop Martin said that Lover's Lane was the first church in the state of Texas to integrate when it opened its doors to Mrs. Jones. Some people left the church. But today, on any given Sunday, you'll find two or three hundred Africans from 14 different countries and people from all kinds of cultures and backgrounds who find a place here. 
On Sundays, we increasingly experience a sacred harmony of God's children, which is our dream. Now this morning, I want to tell a story of Tom Ship that I have told many times before, because I don't want you to forget it. But I want you to hear it differently this morning. I want to ask you a question up front. What's ringing in your ear? Why are you here? Why did you embrace this church and our mission and our weirdness and our dealing with messiness and all of that? I mentioned that Tom was an orphan. His mother died when he was four. He and his three siblings then were um, really at a loss. There was a grandmother, Lizzie, who helped the father who worked for the railroad take care of the kids in in the beginning, but it became too much for her. And when she died, the family was in complete disarray. To the point that Tom's father had to farm literally these children out to families in this little area of South Missouri called Prairie Home to live and to work for room and board. And Tom went to live with a family, German farming family. He said, the first night I did my chores and I washed at the well and I came into the house and there was a table, four chairs, four people seated. And the father said to me, you don't eat at this table, boy. You'll eat when we get finished on the porch out back. We'll bring you a plate and you'll sit at this table and you'll eat here. And when you're finished, your bed is in the barn and that's where you'll sleep. Fifteen-year-old kid. And so for over a year, this, this, this young Tom Ship lived under those conditions until he finally told his father, I can't do this anymore. Can you find me another house? Another family? The Coon family, Les Coon, said he can move in with us. This was Depression era. Tom said the first night, I washed at the well. I came into the house. There was a table and there was a place for me at the table. And that night there was a bed for me in the house. And and he said the next week they they took me to town and, and, and Mr. Coon bought me the very first pair of shoes that I'd ever owned, 16 years old now. First set of clothes I'd ever put on my back. 16 years old. But the most important thing he said was they took me to church. He said, I was honored to be in church that day. It was Holy Communion. He said, in this little church, there was a a pulpit in the center and a little table at the foot of the pulpit. And there was an altar rail that stretched around the table. And he said, I watched as people went up to the little altar rail. And the pastor was coming with little pieces of cracker and little juice cups. And 
and the people would reach up and would receive communion. He said, Mr. Kuhn was kneeling to my left. And then the man whom I used to live with knelt at my right. When the pastor came to me with the elements and I reached up to receive communion, the man on my right gripped my wrist and wouldn't let me receive communion. And the father on my left said in a voice that was loud enough for the sanctuary to hear, It's not your table. But he wouldn't let me go. And he said, by this time, Mr. Coon's face was, was beat red. And he said with a voice loud enough for everybody in the church to hear, It's not your table. But he still held his grip. And then Mr. Coon said, It's not your table. And he released my hand. And I received the body and the blood of Christ for the first time. And, and it was said everything changed about Tom. Every time there was something at the church, Tom was there. If the youth were doing a, a little uh, play, Tom was right in the center of it. If they were going somewhere, Tom was Right there with them. The church became the center of his life. Just like it was the center of that family's life. You know what I believe? I believe ringing in Tom's ear. All throughout his youth. When he heard the calling of Christ on his life to become a pastor. Throughout seminary. He heard it ringing in his ear. It's, it's not your table. It's the Lord's. When he picked up Bob and that Ford in the junkyard, he didn't know what he was going to do with him. But for three days as he held his hand, you can just bet that he was hearing ringing in his ears, it's not your table, it's, it's Bob's table too. Because it's the Lord's. When Miss Bernice Johnson called and said she was wanting to join the church and would it be okay if she joined the church in the midst of all of the civil rights struggles and people getting killed throughout the South. It, and Tom heard ringing in his ears, it's not your table. Today, is there anybody going to say it's not a table where a person who's just gotten out of prison can be? Would we say that it's not a table for an alcoholic today? Would, would we say that it's not a table for someone who is, is deaf or someone who is of another culture? When we say it's not a table that's, that, that's fit for someone who's gay? Would we say that it's, it's not a table fit for, for someone who believes differently than I believe? I hope ringing in your ear too is that profound theological understanding.
that this is the Lord's table. And at this table all are welcome because our Lord died for all. His body was broken. His blood was shared for all. And we're called to be that place of radical acceptance that says, we, we've got a table here, but it's not a Methodist table. It's not a lover's lane. To, it's, it's the Lord's table. And, and we're the stewards of it. And at this table, all are welcome. If you believe in that kind of radical acceptance, I think you, you may have found a place here where you can move off the sidelines and get in the game. If you've been a member here for a long time and you just kind of like the windows, that's okay, but Tom never saw the windows. He died before this building was ever completed. It wasn't about the windows. It's about whether or not we think it's important to help transform a world into this kind of radical acceptance. Whether it's important for us to try to make sure Dean understands this kind of world of radical acceptance. That's needed. What's ringing in your ears? Lord God, we thank you for your grace that we say is available to all. Lord, we're thankful that your grace is so greatly demonstrated in the sacrament of baptism and in the sacrament of Holy Communion and in the sacrament of our involvement in the world in need. Help us to continue to be a church radical acceptance is our call. Amen.